Hello, my dear listeners. You've once again found your way to Counter Melody, and I, Daniel Gundlach, as your host, am here to present to you the greatest singers who will illuminate our path with their song, guiding us to a brighter day. This week's episode. Hello. Oh my goodness. <clears throat> Hello all and welcome to number four in January's Listener's Favorites series. A few months ago, I got a friend request on Facebook from one Dusty Porn. Well, we had only one friend in common and I thought, who the hell is this? I sat on that friend request for a few weeks, maybe even a couple months, before I finally responded. And boy, am I glad I did, because in doing so, I have made a wonderful new friend. Dusty is a drag queen of monumental stature, striking appearance, and, unlike some of her fellow drag queens, also blessed with a voice straight from heaven. When I first heard her voice, I thought, oh my goodness, here is a countertenor voice more beautiful than mine. Now that's saying something. <laughs> anyway, we have had the most wonderful friendship over the past couple months, and I have asked her as perhaps my biggest new superfan to please introduce an episode from me this month. And she chose wisely the great American soprano Eleanor Stieber. The other thing that thrills me about representing this episode is that it includes the very personal, candid, yet loving reminiscences of my dear friend Michelle Osterley, who was... No, who is Eleanor Stieber's stepdaughter. I don't like to say that I scoop things on this podcast, because I really don't, but it was such an honor to have Michelle's recorded reminiscences to work from as I was preparing this episode. She's a dear friend. I hold her so close in my heart, and I know that after hearing her speak, you will feel the same way about her. She's that kind of person. And it's a special privilege to have Michelle and Eleanor introduced by my new friend, Dusty. Ladies and gentlemen, and everyone on the spectrum, I present to you Dusty Porn, or if she were in Germany, of course, her name would be pronounced more Dusty Porn, or something like that. Here she is. Why, hello, Counter Melody listeners and Counter Melody curious. I am Dusty Porn, fetching and beloved San Francisco drag queen. Tis a pity you can't also lay eyes on me right now. And also new friend of Daniel Gundlach and or Daniela de la Scarpone in a past life. More on that later. Well, back in 1999, I created for San Francisco's Opera in the Park a diva totem pole, which featured my favorite seven operatic divas in order, predominantly stim divas. Google it if you must. 
Not an apropos metaphor for me these days, the, the totem, that is, given its appropriativeness. But the diva ranking inherent in it is, of course, very familiar amongst the most serious and opinionated of opera queens. Well, the diva whose counter-melody episode I'm helping tout here now is third on that totem, right below Mary Violet Leontine Price and Lisa de la Casa, and right above Montsi Caballé. And she is, of course, quintessentially American soprano Eleanor Stieber. I'm so honored to be invited to provide this intro. Well, in this episode, what is featured is her unforced column of sound, unfailingly steady tone, as well as her gloriously limitless vocal capabilities and range, including pointed Sprechstimme, all the way from ebullient operetta to the most grueling Richard Strauss excerpt, which happens to be my favorite, as well as portions of a very tender and revealing interview with conductor Michelle Osterly, as she is Eleanor's stepdaughter, this exclusive includes her very engaging memories from her childhood, including at Eleanor's home called Melody Hill. Now, for those who have a bit more time and patience, allow me a bit more effusiveness on Counter Melody, Daniel, and my own very happy discovery of them this past autumn, thanks to a Facebook post by a friend of one of his episodes. See, passing it on does help get the word out. It felt like kismet as when kindred spirits find one another in this woods of life. I immediately discovered that many of Daniel's favorite classical vocalists were also mine. Renatina Scotto aside, lol. Including a few that called for some, let's say, rehabilitative work, which Daniel has done on behalf of misunderstood divas around the world, such as Anamofo, Maria Ewing, Elena Kotrubash, even R. Stieber, and others. I've already clocked over 30 hours of his Counter Melody podcast, but still have plenty of his episodes in my To Listen To queue, such as John Vickers, Odetta, Regine Crespin, and more. Daniel's own speaking voice, soothing, firm but loving, and his diction with shades of that coveted grandiosity of such international divas as Jesse Norman would alone be reason to sidle up to your laptop with a cup of tea and a blanket for hours of listening. But there is also his passion for this art form and its greatest proponents, with his vast knowledge, both lived and listened, as well as his juicy content, much of which is less well-known and some even hard to come by. Being an opera drag queen myself, to later discover that Daniel was also, <gasps> gasp, Daniela della Scarpone of La Gran Scena fame, along with Iris Sif and Filene Wannell, was a slam dunk. I had revered that company and their resonating impact for decades. Gay and queer culture that must not be forgotten. Not only were we fellow opera queens, but now we discovered also fellow operatic countertenors and at times, drag divas ourselves. Oh, and dare I forget, like Daniela, I'm a queen of many words, in case you couldn't tell. And what joy this continued connection and podcast continue to bring my life. Happy listening to you, and be sure to pass his episodes on to your friends, opera fans, and curious alike. 
These are singers, anecdotes, and an art form that we have some agency in helping to continue to thrive. And let's help make La Stieber more of a household name of opera lore, shall we? Take good care. Moi. Welcome to Counter Melody, the podcast on great singers and great singing. As always, I am your host, Daniel Gundlach. No preaching here, no lecturing, well, maybe just a tiny bit of each, but the primary spotlight will always be on the singers that enrich and enhance our lives, no matter what is going on in the world around us. Thanks for joining me. And now, this week's episode. I have not yet done a full episode on Eleanor Stieber, and you might well ask, Why the hell not? To which I respond, I don't know. But anyway, today's is a very special and, dare I say, unique glimpse into the life and career of Eleanor Stieber. She was born on July 17th. What year was she born? 1914 and died on October 3rd, 1990. Since this is a celebratory episode, let's kick off with something completely ebullient. Victor Herbert's Italian street song from Naughty Marietta. In this 1951 recording, Eleanor Stieber is led by Percy Faith and accompanied by his orchestra and chorus. that this is a special episode, let me explain. One of my dearest friends is the enterprising choral musician, conductor, and all-around musical mover and shaker, Michelle Osterley. For those of you who don't know Michelle, she founded and conducted 
the Manhattan Girls Chorus, which had a brief but stunning run of successes over the past, I would say, probably 15 years. She is also, as I discovered a number of years ago, the stepdaughter of today's subject, Eleanor Stieber. And as such, she has graciously recorded her impressions and memories of Eleanor Stieber, which I will be sharing with you over the course of the podcast. I guess I would call this an exclusive. So, (laughs) wow, exciting, because she presents a unique viewpoint and insight into this artist. I'll let her kick off the episode. Here's Michelle. Hello, everyone, and greetings from London. My name is Michelle Osterley, and I'm speaking to you from the cellar of a 200-year-old home as we're going through a pretty major heat wave here in London. And this is my attempt to speak to you in a nice, cool place about someone that I have deeply, deeply loved, Eleanor Stieber, who happened to be my stepmother. I'd like to thank Daniel, my dear, dear friend, for inviting me to contribute to this podcast. I'm very grateful to you, Daniel. Thank you so much. And thank you, everyone who's listening. I am extremely grateful that there continues to be an interest in Eleanor and her glorious, glorious voice, which is an understatement. (laughs) And to know a little bit more about this woman who is oftentimes quite mysterious, I'm imagining to those of you who were fans of hers. She was indeed a very complex person, but my primary thoughts of her are those of a a person who loved deeply and felt passionately about everything she touched, including me. I have only fond memories of her. Some of them are quite humorous, some of them are quite dramatic, but I want everyone to know what an extremely loving person she was. It's etched in my memory the times when Eleanor and my father would drive to pick me up and take me back to Long Island. As always, they arrived with bravado. Eleanor in complete makeup, perfect hair, perfect dress, generally a long dress, a muumuu, and perfectly polished nails. She never went anywhere without makeup, hair, nails, dress. And my father was part of that driving force for caring about how she presented herself in public and her image. In fact, he was the one who generally did her hair and makeup and made many of her costumes. He was a man of many talents. He was quite a Renaissance man. And they would arrive in this giant white convertible car to pick me up. And here I am, little girl. This trip started when I was about four years old. And they'd come to Flint, Michigan, where I lived with my mother and and two siblings in a small track house, just slightly on the wrong side of the tracks in Flint. And they'd approach the house, and let me tell you, cars stopped, heads turned, people stopped. That's the way it always was with Eleanor and my father, these two extremely attractive people that were not dressed in the manner of those you'd see when you go to your local market or any place in the community. And I remember them coming, and my poor mother would be sent to the sofa to sleep while they went in her room and took her bed. I I can't even imagine how that must have felt. But she adored Eleanor, and uh, 
was very, very kind to her. And Eleanor was also kind, my mother as well, which I was very grateful for. They'd pick me up in their white convertible. And this is back in the time when seatbelts were not used. I don't even know if there were any in the car. And Eleanor's makeup case was always placed in the middle of the front seat. And that's where I'd sit so I could see the road in front of me. Or I would sit on Eleanor's lap. She'd hold me tightly and I'd, I'd fall asleep, nestled between her bosoms, as we called them back then. And I felt loved. I felt deeply loved by her. we just heard was the beautiful lullaby from Madama Butterfly in a 1949 studio recording with Eleanor Stieber and Jean Madeira, heard briefly as Suzuki. I'm going to do a very brief biographical sketch supplemented by musical excerpts featuring Eleanor Stieber in some of her most, dare I say, iconic roles. Eleanor Stieber was born in Wheeling, West Virginia, and grew up in a musical family. She was particularly close to her mother, who was herself an amateur singer. Eleanor was equally gifted, as Michelle tells us, in both piano and voice. And in fact, when she went to the New England Conservatory, her intention was to study piano. But she was also studying voice with a man named William Whitney, who persuaded her that singing was the way to go. Praise the great goddess for that, because look what she gave the world in return. William Whitney gave Stieber a very, very strong technical grounding. And in fact, I think this is one of the big reasons for her vocal longevity, as well as her absolutely seamless vocal technique. Her operatic debut was as Zenta in 1936, when she was aged only 21 years old. Wow. From thence, after that debut, she went to New York to study with the Heldon tenor Paul Althaus. And in 1940, she won first prize at the Metropolitan Opera Auditions of the Air, where she sang this aria, which clinched the win for her. 
Hernani Volami. This is heard in a 1950 recording with Fausto Cleva leading the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. <laughs> the same year that she had won the Met competition. In 1940, the role was Sophie in Richard Strauss's Der Rosenkavalier. Six years later, she appeared on a live broadcast of the opera, and I'm going to play you a short portion of the presentation of the rose with Risa Stevens as Octavian and Fritz Busch leading the orchestra. I have never heard a Sophie with such clarity and power ever before, and God knows there are some great Sophies out there, including birthday girl Helen Donat. This is unlike any other version of Sophie that I've ever heard. And bear in mind, please, that this is live. mind-numbing to consider her versatility. She was 
probably most celebrated as a Mozart singer. She sang in the Met premiere of Entführung aus dem Serail, which was done in English as, I think they called it the Seraglio, but abduction from the Seraglio. She's left a studio recording of the big Constanza aria, and it is a stunner. Other of her Mozart roles were Don Elvira first, then graduating to Don Nanna. She also sang in a celebrated production of Così fan tutte at the Met, which was done in English translation. There's a famous studio recording of that. I'm going to play you a live performance of her Fior di Ligi from 1955. I'm not playing the Comescolio, but rather the Per Pietà, or as it's called here, Oh, Forgive Me, Dear Beloved. Stieber was a superb Verdi interpreter, and I would suggest ideally suited to the role of Violetta, which she also sang at the Met and other places, including Lyric Opera of Chicago, where she made a series of very 
important and significant appearances, including in their very, very first production, where she also sang her first Donanna. But now let's hear a moment, just a moment, from her Violetta in a live 1949 performance. This follows directly upon the scene with Giorgio Germont, where Violetta has determined that she indeed must leave her young and naive lover, Alfredo, behind, much against her own better judgment. She's just writing the Dear John, or the Dear Alfredo, letter, when Alfredo, in the personage of Giuseppe di Stefano, comes in, and we hear her impassioned plea to Alfredo that he always love her as much as she loves him. soprano and tenor for the ages. This is a 1946 radio recording from The Voice of Firestone with Eleanor Stieber and Yussi Bierling singing The Miserere from Il Trovatore. I don't believe that Stieber ever sang Leonora on the stage, but she did sing in concert performances of this opera, and she would have made a stunning Leonora, as evidenced in this wonderful radio recording. I will only briefly mention that both of these remarkable artists were alcoholics, 
And though UC Bierling has been dealt with much more kindly in retrospect, Eleanor Stieber remains criticized and indeed reviled by many for her own struggles with alcohol, a situation which Michelle addresses later in the program. outside of the Met, into Europe. She made appearances at Kleinborn, Edinburgh, Vienna, and, as we are about to hear, both the Maggio Musicale in Firenze and Bayreuth. She took part in a legendary production of La Fanciulla del West at the Maggio Musicale, under the baton of Dimitri Mitropoulos, who was one of her most significant conductor colleagues. When she went to sing in Firenze, evidently she was jumping into the role and made a valiant and indeed superhuman contribution in that most difficult of parts. Here is just a moment from the very end of the opera as Minnie and Dick Johnson, or Ramirez, here in the person of Mario del Monaco, ride off literally into the sunset. This performance took place in June 1954.
The previous summer, 1953, Eleanor Stieber made her single appearance at the Bayreuth Festival, singing one of only a handful of Wagner roles that formed part of her repertoire, that of Elsa in Lohengrin. This was an enormous triumph for Eleanor Stieber, and thank goodness for all of us that this performance was recorded live and released on the London Decca label. She is the Elsa of one's dreams. I have very rarely heard anyone else who even comes close. There are a few, but Eleanor Stieber is right up there with the very greatest. This is a moment from the second act confrontation between Elsa and Ortrud, played in this instance by that towering dramatic soprano Astrid Varney, who, unlike Stieber, was appeared frequently at Bayreuth. This is the moment in which Elsa expresses pity for Ortrud because she can only see the evil in things, not, of course, recognizing that Ortrud indeed represents the face of evil. This is a stunning moment, and the orchestra is conducted by Josef Kajabert. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> 
mentioned that we always think of Stieber these days as being a Mozart singer primarily, but when we talk about vocal categories, who's often paired with Mozart, but Richard Strauss. Though she is not so well remembered as being a Strauss singer, we've already heard her stunning Sophie in Rosenkavalier, and she went on just a very few short years later to also give very memorable performances of the Marshallin in the same opera. Yet another of her momentous accomplishments at the Met was her portrayal in the Met premiere of Richard Strauss's Arabella, which was done in an English translation when it was first produced there. I'm going to play you just a very short excerpt from the second act duet between Arabella and the Mandrika, her older suitor, of the great Canadian bass baritone George London. I should mention here the recent demise of his widow, Nora London, who devotedly cared for her husband in his final illness and later ran the foundation that has supported so many young singers. Let us spare a thought for Nora London. And meanwhile, I will be featuring George London in an upcoming Counter Melody episode, most likely next season. So again, stay tuned. Though he doesn't quite reach the final note at the end of this duet, he was the mandrika of one's dreams, I would suggest, as is Stieber, an exceptional Arabella, one who ranks, in my opinion, up there with the greatest Arabella of all, Lisa della Casa, who, of course, eventually sang it many times at the Met. The orchestra in this excerpt is led by Rudolf Kempe.
missed an enormous opportunity when they did not present Frau Onschatten in the 1950s. They would have been able to cast with singers like Inge Bork, Elisabeth Hüngen, any number of Helden tenors, and it all could have been headed by Eleanor Stieber as the Kaiserin. She did sing an abbreviated version of the opera under the baton of Karböhm in Europe again in the summer of 1953. And we have recorded evidence, shall I say, from two different performances that she gave that summer. And here is just, again, a very brief portion of the Empress's awakening scene, but you can hear that this role has very rarely been sung with such mastery and insight. that this tribute to Eleanor Stieber is going to take place in two separate episodes because there's so much material to cover and because Michelle has so many interesting things to say. And in the second episode, we will talk at great length about Eleanor's assumption of the title role in Samuel Barber's 1958 opera Vanessa, which incidentally was set to a libretto by Giancarlo Menotti, his lover, musical partner, and friend. But that's coming up next week. The point is that as the 50s wore on and as the reign of Rudolf Bing stretched through those years, Stieber often found herself being overlooked and undervalued. 
and she was pretty damn pissed at the Met. And on the 10th of October 1958, she went to Carnegie Hall and performed a mind-blowing recital, which included two very challenging Mozart arias, two scenes from Die Frau Schatten, another series of bravura arias, God, I can't even remember. I think she sang Les Nuits d'été, Knoxville, summer of 1915, which she had commissioned from Samuel Barber a number of years previously. I mean, what she sang on this recital just boggles the mind that she could just go out there and do it. But she was that solid a musician and singer that she did the entire thing fearlessly and so, so memorably. This performance was recorded and released on her own private label, which Michelle references in her portion. But here is part of Elvira's mad scene from Ipuritani, as performed by Stieber and her pianist Edwin Biltcliffe on that memorable occasion in the fall of 1958. <laughs>
Eleanor Stieber did participate in one more incredibly important and trend-setting premiere at the Met, and that was singing the role of Marie in the Met's first production of Wozzeck, which took place in 1959. She was reunited there with the conductor Karl Böhm, with whom she had so memorably performed the Kaiserin a few years prior. But to round off this portion of the program, I'm just going to play you a short excerpt from the Bible scene from the third act. What I want to point out to you is her unique way of approaching the Sprechstimme in this role. She really intones each notated Sprechstimme note on the pitch, but creates also the impression of an almost illiterate woman trying to make out the words in the Bible. And it's all capped with a stunning high C. I submit to you that Eleanor Stieber was one of the greatest Maries in the history of this opera. <laughs> her summers at Melody Hill, about Eleanor Stieber, about her father's marriage to Eleanor Stieber, about her upbringing in general, and the influence that Eleanor had on her life, an influence which continues to be felt by my dear friend up to the present day. And they would drive me to a place that had a name, Melody Hill. That's the home where Eleanor lived, and also my father during this period of time. The house was built by a man who was a sea captain. And so my bedroom happened to be, it looked like a berth from a ship. It had a round opening that had brass covering the inside of the opening, wood paneling and porthole windows. I'd go into this room and I'd feel like I was on an exotic voyage somewhere. The house was quite dramatic. <laughs> Everything about Eleanor and my father was dramatic. In this house, there were two nine-foot Steinway grand pianos, tremendous lead glass windows. I, don't, I can't even begin to know how high the ceilings were. And there was a balcony that looked down into the living room. 
And on that balcony, a life-size oil painting of Eleanor as Vanessa. And the painting on either side had beautiful, heavy, red velvet drapes. And there was a spotlight perfectly placed in the middle of the portrait. There were other life-size oil paintings as well throughout the house. There was a table that I was absolutely fascinated with that had batons in it of every conductor that Eleanor had ever performed with. And a lovely music box, this large music box that would wind up and I loved listening to with Eleanor. But one of my favorite things to do, of course, was to lie underneath one of the pianos and I would lay my head on Paco, her first dog, who's a cocker spaniel, and had the softest ears. And I would just, I remember so clearly having my cheek pressed against Paco's ear under the piano and listening to Eleanor sing. She would accompany herself, and she began as a pianist, and so she was quite accomplished, and then started singing. Very impressive to hear a singer who's so skilled be almost equally skilled at the keyboard. Summers at Melody Hill were vibrant, and every sense was ignited. There are always some sort of smells coming from the kitchen. Eleanor and my father were excellent cooks, and every meal was multiple courses and things that children my age normally were never exposed to, like lobster, fresh lobster. We'd watch the lobsters run around on the floor and the dog Paco, and then there was Mimi barking at the dogs. They thought it was so funny until they picked the lobsters up and threw them in the boiling water. <laughs> There'd be things like aspic and sturgeon and caviar steak and kidney pie, which was god-awful, and I was punished for not eating by my father. And the dinner table was always set with silver and crystal and china. Of course, the china had a picture of Melody Hill and the name Melody Hill on it. That's what everyone has, right? A china that has a picture of your home. I love the fact that I was in charge of lighting the candles at night for dinner. There were always, it was always candlelight and I loved going into the drawer with all of the different colors of candles and deciding which candles would go on the table that evening. And then sitting there at the table, the dining table, with perfect posture and manners, which were insisted by my father and Eleanor. I wasn't allowed to have my arms on the table or to have the soup spoon touch my lips. I was to hold it sideways and tip the spoon just perfectly into my mouth. I was quite often alone, and how magical to be a young child and have Melody Hill as your playground. Looking out into the woods, there were several acres. I, I believe I read somewhere that there were seven acres, which was a perfect place for a child to wander alone in the summer. But I primarily remember being by myself and having this huge world in front of me where I could explore both in nature, in the woods. I spent a lot of time climbing trees and playing the fields and gathering berries and nuts and all sorts of things, imagining that I was a pioneer woman in these beautiful woods that surrounded Melody Hill. I go back to that place often, very, very often. I see myself and remember reciting certain things and wandering in the woods and hearing the ocean crashing. Oh, the hours of 
so fondly being with Eleanor in the garden with her and her Morris Minor going to the beach. She loved that car. We'd pack it up in the back with all kinds of toys and baskets and shovels and blankets and things. And we'd go down to the beach and I'd collect shells. And she encouraged me a lot to be creative in all regards, not only music, but also art. And I always had some sort of project she'd set up for me with painting or decoupage or taking these beautiful baskets and decorating them with shells and glitter and all kinds of things. It was a fabulous playground and a wonderful place as a child to be a little mouse in the corner and hear all of the adults and the singing, the glorious, glorious singing. It was also scary. It was They were big personalities with lots of emotion. And as I'm sure most of you know, Eleanor and my father were both alcoholics. I suppose one of the things that I hope that people will be more compassionate after hearing this podcast in regard to Eleanor and her alcoholism. It's a disease, and it's something that is misunderstood. And I'm not making excuses for Eleanor and some of her behaviors, but I simply ask for people to try to understand this disease, to have more compassion and to stop being so judgmental. A lot was asked of Eleanor, and I believe that there was a lot of gray when it came to what was reality and what was fantasy. And I'm not entirely certain that there was really a difference when it came to Eleanor. I'm not sure she ever knew where one started and one ended, because she was constantly in the spotlight everywhere she went. She couldn't go anywhere without being recognized and noticed and made to feel, I'm sure, as though she was on stage. I have a vivid memory of going to the little bodega with her in Port Jefferson just to get a loaf of bread or a carton of milk. And at that time in my life, I was very much of an introvert, extremely shy. I didn't like any attention on me, which is rather difficult, (laughs) as I'm sure you can imagine from what I've shared thus far. And I remember her breaking out in an aria, full voice, in this little tiny little shop. And I would be absolutely... horrified. I remember trying to hide in the aisles, only that didn't work too well for me. And of course, she'd always call me. So it was impossible to pretend as though we weren't together. Of course, I'd give anything now to be present in that scenario again. It was a beautiful thing to see, though, how generous she was with her talent and how she desired to bring joy and beauty everywhere she went and everything she did, whether it be her garden, beautiful home-cooked meals that she made with my father, way that her home was beautifully appointed. Everything, every detail, every single detail was considered. Perhaps that's one of the most important things I learned from her, is how vitally important details are in life, both in music and art, but just in life in general, and certainly in music. And you can hear it in her voice, in the way she sang a phrase, in the way she sang an individual word, consonants, vowels. More than any singer I've ever heard in my lifetime, her diction was always, always perfect. And the reason it was perfect is because she cared about the text that she was singing. It was vitally important to her. 
and she put a great deal of time and effort and energy into understanding the text and and being in character and communicating the text from her entire soul, her entire being. She believed that the voice was her instrument, but that it wasn't just the voice itself, but her entire being was her instrument. And her entire being did exude incredible emotion, passion, always. It didn't matter if she was singing something that was sacred or an opera or an art song. It didn't matter. My father did a lot of wonderful things for and with Eleanor, but he also did a lot of destructive things. And I don't want to make this about him, but just know that her life with my father was not easy. And because I had mentioned he was also an alcoholic, so you can only imagine the kind of conversations that took place in Melody Hill loud screaming matches and arguments and fits that happened. My father was known for having affairs and had them throughout his marriage with my mother and with Eleanor, and then, of course, his other two wives. (sighs) And that was difficult for everyone, and everyone was aware. Eleanor finally had had enough of my father spending her money. He, everything was so extravagant. They had to have the best of everything. We were always chauffeured around in limousines, and we had people. <laughs> there are always people. Which was, for me, this girl, the little girl from Flint, Michigan, who basically raised, I raised myself because my siblings, as I mentioned, were older and off doing their teenage things when I was growing up. And my mother was working double shifts without any help from my father. I was alone, and I, I raised myself. I was often hungry. And at school, I'd be pulled out of class and fed by my teachers, and they would comb my hair. And then I'd go off to Melody Hill in the summer 
with the two nine-foot Steinway grand pianos and the life-size oil paintings and the giant stage on the grounds and the <sighs> extravagant dinner parties. And <laughs> we were going to the New York World's Fair. Eleanor was performing in the West Virginia Pavilion. But I just remember that. It was a magical. I saw, yes, all of a sudden I was treated like I was someone special and people weren't making fun of me or treating me like I was some helpless child who was abandoned. And I was somebody special, I guess. Let me just make brief reference to the recordings with which I supplemented Michelle's beautiful narrative. First was a 1950 recording of the Eric Coates song, Bird Songs at Eventide. Second was Eleanor Stieber in a 1956 live recital performing the second verse of Danny Boy, which I did because... She sings it with unparalleled intensity and beauty. And finally, as Michelle referred to Eleanor's performance at the West Virginia Pavilion in the New York World's Fair of 1964, we heard a 1950 Voice of Firestone telecast of Eleanor singing the second verse of Carry Me Back to Old Virginia by African-American composer James A. Bland. Michelle will be returning with further insights and revelations in an episode that we'll post sometime over the next month. But I want to end today's exceptional episode with the conclusion of Samuel Barber's stunning vocal tone poem, Knoxville, Summer of 1915, which Eleanor Stieber commissioned and premiered and recorded the first recording of this now essential work. She re-recorded the piece on the stand label. This was a live performance from Trenton on the 13th of January, 1962. She is in stunning voice, and the care with which she interprets the text has never been more clearly intoned or felt. And I wanted to round off the episode with this moment in particular because it represents a benediction upon a family. The family that Michelle describes may not have been a traditional one, such as depicted in James Agee's prose poem here, but I suggest that Eleanor Steber bestows upon all of us an extraordinary benediction here. Oh, <laughs>
Eleanor is remembering. Because those memories and those thoughts have energy that continue to live on. And I want the memory of Eleanor as being one of the most beautiful voices of all time, for her to be remembered for her gift, but also for her to be remembered by her loving, loving soul. Today by Michelle Osterley. <laughs> 